0: My guest is Murray Tom. He's the director of software and cloud services at D-Wave. And D-Wave does quantum computing services, which we'll get into. So, uh, Murray, thanks for coming.
1: Thanks, Rich. Yeah, great talking to you. Yeah, so
0: tell me about D-Wave. What's the uh, premise of the company?
1: So, D-Wave Systems uh, is a quantum computing company. Our mission is to unlock the power of quantum computers for uh, the real world today. We've been... uh, doing that since uh, just just approaching twenty years now um, building practical quantum computers and and making them available uh, to uh, our customers and users and developers yeah I've talked to several
0: people about quantum computing uh, you know the technical side but I wanted to start differently with you so are we are we actually close to having quantum computers in use by industry and what will be some of the first uses when it does come in your opinion
1: yeah absolutely so um, we're We we are, in fact, already seeing uh, users in industry making use of quantum computers. Um, So D-Wave has been working with um, customers and collaborators for eight years now on our quantum computing systems. Uh, We were actually one of the earliest providers of um, of cloud access to our quantum computers. And in that time, our customers have developed uh, more than 100 early applications for our quantum computing systems in areas uh, from uh, optimization to a variety of um, uh, projects in machine learning, as well as um, and probably um, most notably and, and most recently in, in material simulation work. So, um, for an example, um, Volkswagen has uh, been working with us for some time now on really sort of fundamentally approaching the challenge of let's not work on sort of synthetic um you know benchmark applications with with data that we're sort of making ourselves. Let's work with industrial data uh, and they've really been targeted on looking at traffic flow optimization as um uh sort of a, a proof of concept project in terms of um demonstrating you know where in that problem uh they're going to be adapting quantum computing, uh mapping their problem to that space and and running it on industrial data that they have um um public data on the positions of of taxis in Beijing. And now, you know, having completed that project, they're looking to extend that through a a real-world application workflow, which will include, you know, actually enabling uh, users a year from now to be able to uh, sort of request routing information through their phones and have that basically go through a hybrid system where it actually does some um, optimization through classical resources and also makes calls to quantum computers to, uh, to basically suggest to them sort of real-time routing on traffic in terms of their, you know, um, their route through traffic. So, you're saying, okay, so this is when someone wants to hail
0: a taxi in Beijing. Right now, obviously, we use classical applications to determine which taxi is closest to that person and which one should be assigned to that person, right? And you want to use mm-hmm. quantum computing along with classical computing to make that algorithm a lot faster, Um I mean, what What would change yeah. by using quantum computing with it and at what point would you use quantum computing versus classical and why is it better for that example
1: yeah that's a good question so the um so there's um let's say if we were to take like traffic flow optimization uh and try to break that down into two two subtasks there are some tasks where you basically say i have two points on a map and I know that this particular um, car wants to get from a to b what's the shortest path algorithm and there's efficient classical algorithms for basically looking at you know particular routes and basically saying okay this is the shortest path that's available to them but if you have a large system of cars you don't necessarily want and this is sort of Volkswagen's vision vision you don't necessarily want like 5000 people to try to take that same route because the car the road doesn't have that kind of capacity so once you've established let's say a variety of routes that cars could take then you have a, an optimization that you need to do where the choices of the routes that the cars are going to take are related to one another. They have correlations, and uh, as they begin to make their choices, other cars should sort of make choices differently. And that optimization is a is a more challenging optimization for classical computers to do. So that was the portion that they mapped to the quantum computer. And you know the the quantum computers that D Wave is building have sort of like a a core function that they're they're running at the at the low machine level, and that that is the the Effectively the difference that quantum computing can make um for their applications is is helping to make some of those more complex optimizations um possible to do um and you know in some cases you know alternatives include you know making classical um alternatives to them and and uh, maybe those are are working well but they don't particularly scale well maybe they have to make approximations to solve them with classical computers that don't yield the same results as if you were able to solve the problems directly. So depending on which uh, application you're looking at and and where our customers are using the technology, there's sort of different benefits that people see realized. But the ultimate goal is to get solutions to those types of problems, you know, faster or with better quality or even matching quality and time, you know, being able to do it um, less expensively. Well, it seems like
0: traditional computers work best when there's an algorithm to solve something and then they can just, you know, churn through it. But quantum computing works more of like in a brute force fashion, fashion or like when there's a heuristic, there's no specific algorithm to do something, but it can run so much faster and in parallel that they can still get good results when classical computers wouldn't at that point.
1: Yeah, there's this interesting thing about quantum computing. So often when we talk about quantum computers, we talk about what is it that's making them different? You know we have the computers on our on our uh, desktops and our laptops and on our phones. you know there inside there there are chips which are basically processing information for us and and a d-wave, we're making similar chips housed in different systems to get them at the right operating conditions. Um, and the fundamental building block there is a, a bit of information, which is then made quantum mechanical, and so uh, the quantum bit is referred to as a qubit. What's interesting about that is that a qubit. It's a binary system. When you measure it or evaluate it, it can only be a zero or a one. But because it's quantum mechanical, when you're processing with it, it can be in both states simultaneously. And what's significant about that is that if you put, if you create a memory register out of those quantum bits and you want to store information in that memory register, it can now contain all of the possible states that the memory register could house. So, if you have um let's say you know two qubits it could it could basically be in all four uh, states at the same time. If you had um, ten qubits, it could be all in you know, all one thousand and twenty four states at the same time uh, but if you had three hundred of these quantum bits, the memory register could be in more states than the number of particles in the universe so what's really interesting about that is that as we're making our quantum computers and as people are designing algorithms for quantum computers they're 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 looking at that enormous sort of exponentially sized um, solution space capacity and trying to create algorithms which search that solution space quickly and provide you with high quality solutions. And that's what the processors at D-Wave do. So when you're programming a quantum computer, you, you may in some sort of models of quantum computation actually tell it how to use quantum mechanics in order to solve problems. But at D-Wave, we're trying to make quantum computers that are practical, that are that people can sort of use an application right away. And our experience is that um, there's not a lot of quantum physicists in the world, and there's not necessarily a huge number of people who want to learn quantum physics before they start programming the quantum computers. So the notion is that um, you don't necessarily have to control the quantum mechanics; you can actually set it up so the quantum mechanics uh, basically works to find a solution for you. And the way I would characterize that sort of using like a a common metaphor would be like um, programming a quantum computer is a little bit like making a maze, you know, for a mouse where um, you have some particular, you know, space that the, uh, like a solution space that you can kind of move through and you have a particular goal, you want to get to the exit, but you know that your problem has penalties and incentives, it has barriers. uh, And so you're, you're basically as a programmer, you're setting those up in the maze. Now in some models of quantum computing, um, you are basically placing a quantum mouse in the maze, and then you have to put it into superposition and then move it through the maze and then get it to interfere with itself in order to make its way to the exit. Um, But in in the types of quantum computers that D-Wave is providing, you basically put a cheese, a piece of cheese by the exit of the maze. It's sort of an incentive. And what happens is the quantum mouse then uses quantum mechanics to move through the maze to find that piece of cheese and, and tell you where the exit is. So you know in in some of the application building, what you're looking to do is you're looking to solve your problem. you You want the solution to your application, maybe the you know the traffic routing uh, solution for your uh, for your cities. Um, and so so you just want that mouse to basically move there as quickly as you can. In some cases, what you're trying to do is learn about the quantum mouse. You want to figure out how does it behave and what kind of problems is it suitable for? So you're constructing mazes and then seeing how it moves through that. and and developers of our quantum computing systems are, are doing a little bit of both uh, whenever they're programming uh, our quantum computing systems.
0: So like in the mouse and the maze example, um, traditional computing, the mouse would have to go one way and then, you know, let's say it moves forward one space. Now it has to reevaluate and see, okay, can I go left, right, forward or back? And it keeps moving, keeps moving, but it would have to go down X number of paths and then retrace. But with quantum computing, it sounds like you could simultaneously, I guess, quote unquote, try every path, through the maze because of superposition and theoretically see this space and possibility all in one second, right? Or all in one processing unit. Or cycle. Exactly.
1: Yeah, Rich, that's, 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 yeah, absolutely on point. You're, you're, you know, if you think about like an algorithm, it's like, okay, can you go left? Can you go down? Can you go right? Can you go up? Okay. And then, you know, take, take whatever move is sort of available to you until you get trapped, and then you kind of have to backtrack through. That's, that's exactly like you're saying, the classical technique. And this quantum superposition is allowing you to sort of, like, move through the maze, penetrate through barriers using quantum tunneling, that kind of thing. And the significant thing about it is that, you know, if all you had to do was, like, find, like, the lowest grain of sand in the Sahara Desert, that would be a relatively easy problem because... Um, because of the number of grains of sand in the Sahara Desert. But in this case, you're looking at like the like vastly larger number of solutions than the number of particles in the universe. So just being able to step through the maze and sequence quickly isn't enough. Well, you know, what's interesting is
0: um, that tells me like, you know, for for various problems, even if they've been solved, we probably don't know what the whole solution space looks like. And certain systems are so complicated that with quantum computing, you might be able to see I don't know different solutions within the same space that we never suspected were there, or we couldn't see because we couldn't see the whole space at once. I know it's like a vague way of talking, but I think you'll understand, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's um, think about it a little bit like um, yeah, think about a little bit like like a mountainous landscape. You know, if you if you're very quick at running downhill, you might be able to run down one slope and get to the bottom, like get to one of the low points in one of the valleys. But what do all the other valleys look like? Right Are there other lower valleys? You know what is that maybe every other point in the landscape is higher, but you're not quite sure so in fact that's that's actually very related to um some of the quantum material simulation work that's that's happened this last summer. uh you know we published papers in science and nature showing how you could uh simulate um and evaluate these exotic properties of materials using the quantum computing system. It's not enough to just know one way that the material could end up being configured you know you sort of say here's all the particles that are in my material and here's how they interact with one another now is this material going to be magnetic or is it going to be non-magnetic you know you're you're looking to find out if the material what kind of properties it's going to take in terms of whether it's going to order or whether it's going to be disordered and really in order to find those solutions you need to know something about the density of the solutions at particular energy so you need to know you need to know about Several of the valleys, or like uh, like a, a statistically significant number of the valleys and and exactly like you said previously that might have been a mystery to us right because there was just more than we could possibly count but but quantum computing can help us to evaluate what some of the structure of that solution space looks like, and that can be really important for uh, some of the calculations that people do in in machine learning and artificial intelligence i mean it's it 's a uh, it's heady mathematical statistical stuff, but that is related to some of this computational complexity that um that researchers and developers and, and data scientists are trying to um program their way through in the space is is basically, you know, looking at like what are the shapes of some of these solution spaces because that affects how the the machines that they're training it affects how they learn. Yeah, I could see so do you have a I don't know, is- is there a uh,
0: – so the number of particles in the universe is what, like 10 to the 80th, 10 to mm-hmm. the 80 approximately? So do you yeah. have a chart in, you know, in your office of or in your mind of other problems? And if we start with, like, the number of particles in the universe, 10 to the 80th, um, what other problems have you looked at and what is their order of magnitude? Because now we have, like, an anchor,
1: you know? Well, the interesting thing is, I mean, when we're –
0: at d wave when we made
1: our five hundred qubit quantum computer, it was searching through solution spaces that were already larger than that ten to the eightieth and now we're at the, the d wave two thousand q which is four times larger um, we're you know the numbers are getting it's it's one of these things, but the numbers are so big it's almost like it's hard to kind of fathom them anymore um and and the interesting thing is as we're working with our customers you know so for instance um you know, as as people are trying to take real world problems and then map them into these expressions of like what they're what they're trying to get done, they're they're even larger still. You know, so in many cases, what we're trying to do is we're trying to help them, you know, uh, contain or let's say extract some of that complexity so that they can basically use the classical computers for what they're really good at, some of the data analysis steps or some where you know there are fast strategic algorithms to move through things. But then also extract these really complex optimization problems so that they can basically map those to a quantum computer. So like Recruit Communications in Japan is looking at web advertising. They have a huge amount of expertise in in providing, you know, um, advertisements for people in terms of like hotel recommendations if they're, you know, looking for um, a particular hotel um, uh, in Tokyo. And... They you know they have systems where you know an individual user is clicking for a site and they have an opportunity to place an ad. Um, that computation takes place really quickly, um, and they have you know high quality algorithms for that. but what they found was that they wanted to do further optimization where they were like pacing the budget of how they spent money on advertisements throughout the day. They didn't want all their advertisements to go out before nine a m. And so there was a uh, a lot, like sort of a an overarching optimization task that they wanted to do every time they wanted to evaluate if they wanted to go with their algorithm's recommendation and place the ad or not. They would also review, you know, how does this fit within the optimization for our daily budget, uh, and they they put that step on the quantum computer and ran that. So, um, you know, that that that's an optimization problem that we kind of see every day. That that sort of like a very real world example, and it's 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 interesting to, to think about the fact that the mathematics that underpins that can be as complex as that, you know, and, in and in those kinds of solutions uh, the customers like recruit communications are looking for just very fast, high quality answers.
0: So what are some of the solutions that you've been working on or you've seen that were most fascinating to you? I don't know. You don't have to name the companies let's say, or if you can, great, but you know, what kind of things uh, have you worked on that, that were like amazing to you?
1: Well, I mean, the the nice thing let's see here so the, the nice thing about working at D-Wave is that we have some quantum computing hardware that's working at a large enough scale that people can really use it for um, building and running sort of practical application development and and once you can kind of get to that point with two thousand qubit it's you know I, I mentioned the quantum material simulation which is fascinating. You know, it, it, it uh it's related to a subject, um uh, some theory that won the Nobel Prize in two thousand sixteen. Um and you know what's fascinating about that was that um as we were um looking to write up the results, we had a um let me actually pull this up. We um we consulted with the professor who had actually um been one of the winners of the Nobel Prize in two thousand sixteen related to that subject. You know, at that time the Nobel um uh, committee or organization had sort of put out a press release saying, hey, the hunt is on now for exotic materials of matter. And that scientist, um, Dr. Michael Kostrelitz, said that uh, that work represented a breakthrough in the simulation of physical systems, which are otherwise essentially impossible. So, you know, that's what's fascinating for me is this notion that, like, we could take some problems that previously you needed a supercomputer to solve, or maybe there were some problems that we just couldn't solve at all, and now we can do them with quantum computing. And as quantum computers grow, that's going to be the only way you would solve the problem. And so, you know, when I'm looking at all of the other applications, what's really fascinating for me is like how real world they are the, the traffic flow optimization, the providing hotel recommendations for travelers. Um, you know, Denso, um, we're working with in Japan, they're really interested in like optimizing their factories. So they have robots that move through factories and they want to optimize their movements so they have minimal downtime. And you know, in October, we launched Leap. It's a quantum application environment where developers can, it's sort of the only cloud environment where developers can get immediate access to a quantum computing system, learning resources, and, and community forums. And one of the applications that uh, I heard discussed from a developer was uh, optimizing the ice time choices for uh, his son's Ring league. And uh, I just kind of think that's that's so cool that, quantum computing can be accessible to the point where we can do, you know, work and helping solve problems for people in, in their everyday lives. And, you know, when we're talking with, you know, our customers and partners, or when I'm talking to new, you know, folks who are new to quantum computing, what they're searching for is, you know, what what is this new technology? You know, what, what kind of problems can it solve? Um, and and what's, you know, exciting in their mind is like, you know, what if that happens, that, that thing that happened in material simulation happens in this application space where, Previously, you know, I had a technique for solving this problem, but two years from now, the only way to solve it is going to be with a quantum computer, because many of them are sort of saying, well, how is, how is my workforce going to adapt to that? How is the economy and the you know, developers who are programming for these systems going to adapt for that? And, and that's part of the reason why we have this quantum application environment out is because um, every one of us who comes to quantum computing is both a teacher and a learner. You know, where we we need to be able to interact with that community through those forums or through those conversations, so that we can learn from the community and their common experiences. But we also have our own knowledge to bring. You know, expertise about the application space that we're working on, or maybe you know, mathematicians are bringing their math or statistics skills. Um, and and it's it's exciting to see that system, that community come together. You know, it, it's going to be the foundation of a new economy uh, in the future um to, to look at those kinds of practical applications. So but that I don't know. It's not a very very specific answer but it's exciting.
0: Well what are some dream applications that have been out there either for, you know, just recently or maybe for a long time? Maybe stuff that's been around for centuries. I don't know. That what what do you see quantum computing being able to uniquely tackle that uh again has been the hope or the dream of many people?
1: Yeah, I mean I think that um I would say that like probably the thing that really gets me going that like really keeps me focused on like it's you know helping to make some of the complexities of quantum computing simpler for people are are ones that really like touch our lives so um, a few years ago I had an opportunity to visit with a researcher at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles uh, who was studying um, research and, and uh, medical treatments for childhood leukemia and you know they, they sort of say you know we we have a treatment for childhood leukemia it's uh, not everything we'd want it to be, but it 's generally quite successful and their goal was what they would like to do is be able to predict whether or not um, a particular patient is going to um, their bodies are going to be receptive to the treatment because if they if they could predict that they weren 't the treatment is quite tough, and they wanted to save them from that and it would if they could help to segment the the group of patients into those for whom the treatment would work and those who wouldn't. And they could get closer to personalized medicine. They could start pouring research dollars into finding the treatments that would work for the group who weren't responding to the treatment that they did have. And, you know, the researchers were so motivated by this mission of what they were trying to do. And they had all of this data. They had metabolic data. They had, they had genetic data. They had gene expression data, all sorts of data. Um, and they just needed tools to help them better detect patterns in this in this data set. And uh, these techniques that the quantum computer can contribute, they're really um, valuable from the sort of machine learning, artificial intelligence, pattern recognition perspective. You know, they allow you to create a model of the world that's going to try to match some pattern that you're seeing in, in data. And so, you know, I would really... I would really love to see that, to see that come together, um, to see the technology come together with the researchers who have the the medical expertise and the you know machine learners who have the programming and algorithms expertise um, to come together to create a solution in that space. I think that would be tremendously exciting for me. Having worked at D Wave for 16 years, um, I would really feel like you know all that time you know I had really. Had a lot of value and meaning, you know, seeing an, uh, an application like that uh, come to fruition.
0: You said um, you have a machine that has that has the pow- power of what, 2,000 qubits? Is that the hmm. largest one you have, or?
1: Yeah, that's right. We have our our latest product is the D-Wave 2000Q. Um, it's got um, it's a processor chip designed with um, 2,048 qubits in it, but uh, of course, with fabrication processes, not every qubit works out. Um, and, uh, we have customers with 2000 queues on site, um, Google and NASA, for instance, have a a 2000 qubit at their location. Um, and we also have a number of customers who are accessing our systems uh, remotely here in Vancouver and and programming on the D-Wave 2000 queues.
0: Is there a breakthrough point? I mean, as I thought that in the world that didn't even exist, a hundred qubit computer, um, I'm surprised you guys have one that's so, you know, so large, but, uh, is there going to be a breakthrough point? Like, what's the goals of D-Wave? Are you working on a thousand qubit one? Will that be just unbelievable? Or uh, do we even need to go there? But that's well, the,
1: yeah, I mean, we're, we're working on our next generation devices, which um, the interesting thing about quantum computing is that um, we're often measured, we often sort of talk to each other about, like, you know, how many qubits are in the systems that we're building. But there's a lot of um, other features of the computers that we're also simultaneously trying to work on improving. Um, so, for instance, um, that you know, the number of qubits basically determines sort of the capacity of your quantum computer to take a, a portion out of your problem. The bigger it is, the more of your problem you can fit into the quantum computer. There's also um, programming devices uh, between the qubits in your quantum computer, which are couplers, and these are uh, some of the programming parameters used to kind of create those walls in your maze, those relationships that sort of tell you where there are penalties and incentives in your in the problem that you're working with. And so, in our next-generation device, we're also looking to increase the connectivity of our processor because that's going to make it easier for our users to map problems to the system. Um, and then we're also working on improving the quantum mechanics. So we're looking at um, making changes in the processor so that um, the quantum mechanics is uh, longer lived. You know, it's better protected from its environment, so that it's not uh, not as it's not disturbed as frequently. And that is basically going to you know in that in that maze analogy, that's going to mean that the mouse has um, is better able to use quantum mechanics to sort of work its way through the maze and find the solutions for you. Um, so I think there's always going to be um, an ongoing quest to grow larger quantum computing systems, make it easier to map applications to them and, and give our developers and users more control over them. Um, early, early on, you know, we also thought similarly, you know, like with um, the information capacity of a quantum computing system, all you have to do is get up to 50 variables and classical computers can no longer simulate them. Um, But what we have found in practice is that, not surprisingly, every time you're building a real physical system, it has imperfections and and noise to it. Um, Also, the guide for how complex a problem a classical computer can solve is also theoretical. So maybe it's not possible to prove that a classical computer could solve a 50 variable problem in the worst possible case. But when you actually start creating the instances and solving them, many times classical computers have heuristics which are very efficient, you know, so it it becomes a difficult challenge just to find the problem, the one instance of the problem that they can't solve. Um, So that's the nice thing about, you know, pushing up to the scale of 2000 qubits. I mean, we had, it was very challenging in the early days when we had our 128 qubit system Um, that we sold to Lockheed Martin in um, 2010. And then when we were getting up to our 500 qubit system, we were really sort of pushing the boundaries. People were, researchers were coming into the space to sort of determine, you know, how do we benchmark quantum computers and how difficult is it for them to compete with classical computers? Um, But now at the 2000 qubit scale, with that sort of research work I was talking about, we're really starting to see uh, a lot of places and and we're hearing from our customers that they're starting to see the benefits of using quantum computers for uh, tackling some of these complex problems. So it's kind of um you might think it might be a sharp line where once you cross, you know, 50 qubits or 100 qubits or 200 qubits, nothing can be simulated anymore. But in fact, it's a little bit more like a spectrum. And uh, and you just start, you know, it's like a, you know, start working away from like the, the thin tail of very, very difficult problems. And then you start working your way up towards the, the thicker body of uh, more complex problems that are routinely difficult to solve.
0: Well if you had a picture like an infographic, you know, of the number of qubits and the type of problems you could solve and we extended it all the way out to like a million qubits, what kind of stuff would you see on the infographic? This is a it's a game to play, you know. What if I dropped a million qubit computer in your lap and said, Here, what could you do with it? And what could you do on the way to that million? You know, what are some thoughts you have?
1: Well, I mean that's uh yeah, that's an interesting game to play because um when it comes to yeah, I mean so I'm trying to think. There's a couple of perspectives I'm coming at here. So if you built like the world's biggest quantum computer and it was perfectly implemented and you were going to try to do with it what um, what people have commonly thought of as being the application for quantum computing, like running Shor's algorithm to factor numbers. If you were to then test it by sort of randomly giving it um, numbers and saying, OK, factor this number and let's compare it to an algorithm... Uh, you know, that would be a really, it would actually be very difficult for it to compete in that test. It's sort of a a funny case, but I mean, you know, half the numbers that you would give it would be divisible by two, right? And then, you know, another third would be divisible by three kind of thing. So so you have this sort of funny scenario where like that heuristic that you would run on a classical computer, which is try dividing by two, try dividing by three, try dividing by five, try dividing by seven, you know, it would actually be able to solve 90% of the numbers, factor 90% of the numbers in like constant time. So, so that's sort of funny. You gotta, you do have to sort of think carefully. Even if you had a large-scale system, you know, you would, you're would, you really going to use it in a hybrid case where classical computers are going to do a large portion of the problem, and you're just going to reserve it for some really complex instances. Um, but the other thing is that it, it's much more helpful if you kind of get the computers in stages because you learn so much along the way. You know, the, the complexity, even for the human developers, grows at each stage, and so they actually create tools and abstractions and utilities which, which then allow them to handle that complexity as the system grows in size. But if, you know, just to sort of answer your question very specifically, um, I think that we're sort of seeing, I mean, once you got up to a system of that size, a million qubits, there are going to be, I mean, even at the 5,000 qubit scale for the system that we're going to be solving, there are going to be problems that humans previously could never, ever solve at 5,000 qubits that now we're going to be able to create the solutions for. And they're not just—it's not just going to go from like not solvable to solvable. There's going to be this massive time difference in terms of like how easily they can be made available. And anytime in humanity we've um, created an engine which can basically do something easily, which previously was difficult to do, like a you know the create a like a, a a steam engine for instance, which could actually like pump you know liquid out of mines or something like that. Um, people were able to find ways to use it. Uh, effectively, so um, yeah, I, I think that you know we're going to be able to sco- discover novel materials which people can then use when they're designing all sorts of components, and and we're going to be able to use it for you know we're at this age in our world right now where there's just we're just bombarded with data, and sensors are very inexpensive, so we can just collect as much as we could possibly want, but we want to create insights out of that data, and. Some of them are you know detecting cats on the Internet are probably accessible to the kind of technologies that we have today but um, even being able to fill out uh, uh, forms or to detect relationships between things logical relationships is something that still eludes machine learning uh, and and those kinds of algorithms uh, so I, I think those kinds of things are suddenly going to come become unlocked and then yeah I mean'm not I'm not, uh, I'm not Sort of uh, an expert in the science fiction space, but I think that um, that's really going to uh, um, create possibilities that I probably couldn't uh, couldn't imagine today. So, so
0: that, gotcha. that's, that's cool. Oh yeah, no, that's, that's I just want to ask you to you know to think about that for a minute. So, okay. Um, uh, one last question. It's kind of a mundane one, but you know I, I don't know much about quantum computers. but I've heard, they have to be run in very special environments, and they have to be run at like super low temperatures. So, can you can you list a few of the factors that makes makes it necessary or the conditions necessary to run a quantum computer and why they're I guess delicate, is that the word to use? Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there are so just to give you a little bit of a map of the space, you know, quantum computers are this idea that in the most general sense of taking the weird laws and behavior, fundamental laws and behavior of the universe and turning it into useful work. taking things like being in multiple states at the same time being able to tunnel between states and and make that do useful work for us Um, so that's sort of quantum computing and there's many models for how you would do that you know between um d wave uh and some of the other big players in the space there's like three or four models of quantum computing that are, are being attempted in construction and Once then you've picked a model like as D-Wave has, then there's also many different ways that you could go about building it. And at D-Wave, we're building it with superconducting material. So building it with like chips, which have metals carrying, you know, currents on on chips that can flow electricity without any resistance. So I'm going to narrow my answer to that space. You know, then you have this chip doing this delicate quantum mechanical computation for you. And you can't even have like a photon of light hit it because it'll actually change the state of the, of the processor and maybe collapse the computation that you're working on, and then you'll need it to kind of recover. So, um, so we have, you know, um, really low temperatures because that's where those metals can carry the current without uh, producing resistance. So when I say low temperature, I mean like lower than 100 times uh, below the temperature of interstellar space. We also have um, very low magnetic fields. So that's because we have loops of current and loops of current can basically interact with magnetic fields around us. So those are also um, 50,000 times lower than than Earth's magnetic field. Um, and we basically also have this uh, electromagnetic shield around it. It's in a room which is basically completely encased in metal, so that radio and and cell phone signals uh, can't come in and and basically interact with the the wires programming the quantum computer. Um, and those are also that as these um, Qubits are effectively mo- transitioning through their states. They can do this in a balanced way so that every qubit looks like every other qubit, um, uh, and and they can kind of that quantum mechanical mouse can sort of move through the maze towards the exit. Because if it gets you know if it gets interrupted on its way, each time it interrupts, it gets interrupted. It basically turns into a regular mouse, and then it basically hits all the walls in the maze and it has to stop there and it has to basically get back into a quantum mechanical state for it to start moving back through. So, um, so yeah. What you'd like to do is let the quantum mechanical mouse be quantum mechanical until it finds the cheese, and then and then measure it out at that point. Okay, very good. So, what's the best way
0: for people that are interested to learn more? Because I have like you know tens of the eighty of more questions. Um, How yeah. can they reach out <laughs> and uh, well, find if- out more and, and maybe see just collaboration?
1: Yeah, we've tried to make as much of this available um, to folks as possible because the barriers in quantum computing are really coming down now. So we have a lot of developers. You know, We have um, you know, 100 early applications developed on the system. There are thousands of developers um, you know, programming quantum computers now and, and uh, getting access to the tools. So if they go to our website, they'll see a link to our quantum application environment called Leap. And um, they can go there, they can sign themselves up for free, and they'll see that they'll get um, one minute of access to a quantum computing system, enough time to run 400 to 4,000 experiments. They'll also see a variety of learning resources we've made available there, illustrated demos, um, in-browser programming examples and documentation, so they can interact with programs for the quantum computer, and also links to our open source tool suite, so they can go in and download them. Uh, they're Python-based and basically begin programming and you know building and running their own quantum applications. And when they have questions, uh, if they're working on problems or they want help through the problems or if they're coming from a particular industry and they want to see if the developer community has ideas on how to solve that problem, there's uh, a group of community forums where they can um, post their questions and, and there's a number of users there who are posting questions and asking um, and replying to them uh, to create solutions. So it's um, it's very active. I think the largest growth is going to be in the application development space, you know, it's really in the era of quantum application development. Um, And it's also the time when the largest community of um, users can come in, get access, interact with quantum computers, and really learn and understand uh, what they are and what they can do for us.
0: Well, very good. Murray, I appreciate you coming. And uh, fascinating stuff. It's great what's going on.
1: Thanks, Rich. Great talking to you.
0: You have been listening to Almost Here,